Well, on that note, happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> Did you have a good Valentine's Day? A lot of obedience and submission, right? <laughs> what a wonderful text to contemplate about uh, on for, for Valentine's Day. Submission and obedience is not really something we talk about a whole lot when it comes to Valentine's Day and uh, maybe relationships. Um, submission and obedience. Of course, the internet, this week there was a meme that I saw, perfect relationships exist in thoughts, movies, and Facebook timelines. Any of you have perfect relationships on Facebook? <laughs> it looks like it sometimes. Uh, and of course, Obed Olavaria, uh, he posted this, uh, perfect parents exist, they just don't have kids yet. <laughs> Any parents? Yeah. Of course, in the true spirit of the text, kids can say perfect, well, we could say perfect kids don't exist. Um, anyways. So, we think um, about relationships when Valentine's Day comes around, whether we like it or not. For some of us, us it is because it is Single Awareness Day, and for some of us, it is because we have broken relationships. For some of us, it is a time to celebrate the love and joy we experience in our relationships. And of course, it is not only Valentine's Day, it's Black History Month. And black, yes, <laughs> and Black History Month um, makes us think about relationships in a different way, doesn't it? So perhaps it is it's good to reflect on submission and obedience uh, when we think of Valentine's Day and Black History Month. Uh, if you've received the worship guide as you came in, we're in the book of Ephesians this month, and we're in uh, sermon number six. Last, next week will be the, the last one. But in the worship guide in the front, I wrote this piece to let us know that in Ephesians chapter one uh, through three, we have Paul expounding about the beautiful, glorious grace of God. And chapter one, verse three, is some of the most beautiful writing in the New Testament, talking about who God is and what God does. And then we see in chapter four, we have this turn from the because of who God is, therefore, go live your life according to that. In fact, in, uh, verse, uh, in, in chapter four, where this uh, turn takes place, the very first word in Greek is therefore. Because of all that had come in chapter 1, 2, and 3, therefore, 4 verse 1 says, go live your life worthy of the gospel and of your calling. And then in chapter 5, where we find our passage for today, it starts with therefore also. Therefore, be imitators of God's love as Christ had loved us. And so we see in this passage there are three sets of relationships. Husbands and wives, fathers and children, and masters and slaves. And we know that this passage pushes uh, personal, emotional, and historical buttons all at once. And for good reason, too. 
Because just think of the damage that has been caused over millennia, the hurt and the pain and the suffering that comes in the name of Christian words such as submission and obedience. It is interesting that the, this three, these three sets of pairs we find actually in Aristotle first, the great Greek philosopher. And not only Aristotle, but many of the other Greek philosophers expounded upon the, the state. And they said the most basic uh, unit of the state uh, is the household and the workplace. And so Aristotle talked about the husband and the wife, the father and the children, and the master and the slave. I had fascinating reading about this. Uh, this last week. Of course, uh, in the Greek uh, mentality, the, the discussion about the household and the workplace was centered only on those who needed to submit to the male, to the master, to the husband, to the father. So as we think about these, uh, these th three sets of relationships, it is important to keep in mind that as Paul writes to the New Testament church and they're trying to figure out how to live life because of God's grace, therefore, uh, a lot of what they live around is a Greek philosophy of the household, where those at the end of these pairs do not have any say. It is interesting that as Paul begins this discussion to the New Testament church, that he actually reverses the order. And that should already give us a clue that Paul is doing something different than what the Greek philosophers and Greco-Roman society is doing and trying to have a hierarchical relationship. Paul's first clue is that the way it's divided, he says wives, he talks to wives first, and children and slaves. Just the fact that he is addressing this to them is beautiful uh, as he starts this. So, so wives and husbands, children and fathers or parents, and then slaves and masters, the vulnerable are listed first. And so many people preach this passage through the lens of Aristotle and Greek philosophy and preach it as the Christian solution or answer. But the Apostle Paul's point is very different. He does not teach these household codes as the norm, but he wants to take the culture of the time and revolutionize it with the message of Jesus. And so he starts off this discussion about these relationships at home and at work by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everything that is following this discussion comes out of mutuality, mutual submission to one another. Paul makes this point earlier in his uh, letter as well. But in this discussion of wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters, he starts with saying we have to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, the Greek philosophers did not consider mutual submission at all. It was only one way. But Paul is introducing a new radical thought for the Christian community that perhaps there is a more excellent way. And so he starts off with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And from there, Paul moves to a metaphor to say what that looks like, what that submission looks like. And he moves to a metaphor of Christ 
and the church. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and present herself as a radiant church with stain and wrinkles and any other, without any of those blemishes, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for the body, just as Christ does for the church. For we are all members of his body, the church. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It couldn't be clearer. Paul is talking about the church and about Christ, and out of that, we talk about relationships in the workplace uh, and at home. See, metaphors are powerful. Metaphors are not a detailed description of things, but it is an image that, that evokes in us, we transfix on it, and we get transformed by the power of metaphor. I read a quote this week that said, therapy is the art of changing a person's controlling metaphor. I'll say it again. Therapy is the art of changing a person's controlling metaphor. We all have controlling metaphors. And as we seek to improve our relationships, sometimes we have to give up on controlling metaphors. And I think for too long, this passage that we've read, the controlling metaphor has been made into a hierarchy. And we need some good old Pauline therapy because the controlling metaphor needs to change. You see, traditionally in this passage, the, the metaphor is reduced to a model or a mandate, and we lose the mystery of metaphor, four M's. <laughs> Metaphor should be mystery, not a mandate or a model. And the church has taken this powerful metaphor and reduced it to a model or a mandate. And we lose the mystery of its power. In fact, Paul in verse 32 says, this is the profound mystery. And we think we can take a profound mystery and put it in a mandate or in a model. The verse before, he says, for this reason a man shall leave his wife and they will become one flesh. This mystery is the one flesh of the union between a husband and a wife. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, not chapter 3, where the fall has happened, but Genesis chapter 2, where God's design is for man and woman to be together in unity. And so we see this husband-wife, Christ-church metaphor as a, there's a profound connection between the two. 
The head-body metaphor is not a model for, for setting the husband above the wife in authority or of responsibility. It is a metaphor of oneness, of unity, founded on the marriage union, as we find it in Genesis chapter 2, of equal partners in mutual submission to one another. Notice that Paul does not ask the husband to become the head of the wife. He simply states that the, this is the reality of marriage. The husband is connected to the wife as the head is connected to the body. For Paul, the mystery of this union is, is best pictured when the human body is viewed as a whole. And as Adventists, we believe in holism. And then he uses a Jewish literary device we call a chiasm. Uh, to explain this beautiful mystery. A chiasm is where you have an A, B, C, B, A kind of poetic uh, piece of writing. And as you can see here in uh, chapter 5, there's the A, B, C, B, A, and obviously the thing that is in the middle is what matters most. The mistake is that we apply linear thinking to something that was meant to be a chiasm, not linear. When we mistakenly apply linear thinking, we think the thing that comes at the end, husbands love your wife and wives respect your husbands is what is important. But for Paul, as we see here, the thing that is the most important is that the main point is the center. A husband will leave his family of origin, be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. Oneness and unity is at the heart of this passage, not hierarchy. And by the way, it is the husband who leaves his house to go to his wife, not the other way around, as we expected in culture. It is not the wife who leaves her house to join her husband, but the, the husband leaves his family to join with his wife in this one flesh union. Oneness is the controlling metaphor in this passage, I submit, and not hierarchy or anything else. It is as impossible to separate the husband from the wife as it is to separate Christ from the church. The relationship of the head to the body is not a function of authority, but it's in a function of unity and the necessity of life. It is not about a union above the other, but it is a union with the other. It is not about a union to suppress and demand, but a union to love and embrace. Paul's metaphor for marriage is not a model and it is not a mandate. It is a profound mystery and the image of this mystery of unity cannot be fully explained as intended by God, but it can be experienced. And so this understanding of Christ and the church and the head and the body, this metaphor for marriage uh, is a picture of unity rather than leadership. And in fact, the entire context of the book of Ephesians makes that plain. The core theme of Ephesians is unity. If you read Ephesians chapter 4, where we go from the because to the therefore, Paul says, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received by being humble and gentle, patient and bearing with one another in love. Listen to Pastor Chris's sermons on that. It's beautiful. Bearing with one another love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body. There is one Spirit. Just as you were called to 
One hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. Paul cannot be clearer. This is about oneness. Oneness is the controlling metaphor for our relationships to each other at home and at work. And to drive the point home, 11 times we see that Paul says we need to read this in the light of Christ. We need to experience this in the light of Christ. Nine times he says, as to the Lord. Husbands, as to the Lord, treat your wives. Wives, as to the Lord, treat your husbands. Children, as to the Lord, obey your parents. Parents, as to the Lord, uh, treat your children. Slaves, as to the Lord, obey your masters. Masters, in the same way, as to the Lord, treat your slaves. In the light of Christ, if we want to be serious about the practice of resurrection, we cannot do it without the company of the resurrected Christ. We have to pay attention to the way of Jesus. And of course, we know a lot about the way of Jesus. Our Jesus, who made a habit of turning hierarchy on its head. Mark chapter 9 is one example of it. The disciples are arguing about who's the greatest and what is Jesus is. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. In the New Testament, uh, they talk about Jesus as the model for us all. In your relationships with another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage or grasped, as some translations say. No, rather, Christ made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of the man, he humbled himself by coming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And of course, we cannot forget Paul's mantra, the one thing that perhaps is the most powerful that he shares, and that is, there is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all you're all one in Jesus Christ. In the biblical narrative, hierarchy enters into relationships as part of sin and curse. When then, when then a man's oppression of women starts, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule, rule over you. But with Christ, hierarchical relationships are exposed for the scam that it really is. Because Jesus says the last will be made first. The poor are the blessed, the meek inherit the earth, and God of the universe takes the form of a slave. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level, you've heard it said. At the foot of the cross, master and slave, child and parent, husband and wife are equal. And to drive the point home, at the end of the passage, Paul says, submit to one another because God shows no favoritism. Parents, do you have favorite children? Don't, don't answer that. <laughs> Paul drives the point home saying, God does not have favorites. When we need to stop making this metaphor into a mandate or a model, when we lean into the power of the mystery of this metaphor, oneness and this union, a profound transformation happens in our relationships. This profound transformation, I believe, is that we care for people for their own sakes, 
not because of our own self-interest, Aristotle. We care for people for their own sakes, not because of our own self-interest and what we get out of it. The metaphor of Christ and church moves us from selfishness to selflessness. I love this quote written uh, coming from a parenting book. When you parent, it is crucial you realize you aren't raising a mini-me, but a spirit throbbing with its own signature. For this reason, it is important to separate who you are from who each of your children is. Children aren't ours to possess or own in any way. When we know this in the depths of our soul, we tailor our raising of them to their needs rather than molding them to fit our needs. Amen? My father-in-law posted this picture. This is a, a, a baseball or soccer or football coach saying, take the field and remember your parents are counting on you to achieve their unfulfilled dreams of sports glory. The sad truth is that even in our Christian Adventist leagues, we find parents living vicariously through their kids when they are their own persons. Paul says the Christ church metaphor will transform your relationships to go from self-interest to, to the needs of others. I read this uh, on Facebook last week and Value posted it last night and I thought I'd share this, an example of this. This is a guy, Thomas McFall, who had an experience in class. Um, I'm just gonna read it as is and I, I, I blanked out some of the choice words. Hey guys, I know I usually post this, uh, I just post jokes on my Twitter, but bear with me because I wanted to share something. So in one of my management classes, I sit in the same seat uh, in the front every day. Every single day, I sit there. Now, I also sit next to some foreign guy that barely speaks English. The most advanced thing I've heard him say to me in English is, wow, my muffin is really good. <laughs> this guy also has a habit of stacking every item he owns in the exact space I sit. His bag, his food, his books and his phone are always right on my desk. Now, every single time I walk in class, this guy says, ah, Tom, you here, okay, and starts frantically clearing my desk of his belongings. He then makes it a habit to say, ready for class, yeah? And he gives me a high five. Every day, this guy gives me the high five. I always get annoyed with this guy. I'm thinking, dude, you know I sit in this seat every day. Why are you always stacking your books here? <laughs> and the last thing I want to do is give this guy uh, who barely speaks my language high fives at eight o'clock in the morning. Get your things off my desk. But today I came to class and was running late for a few minutes, uh, running a few minutes late. I was standing outside because I had to send a quick text message. I could see my usual space through the door out of the corner of my eye. Of course, my desk was filled with his belonging, the usual. As I'm standing there on my phone, another guy who was also late walks into the class before me and tried to take my seat since it's closest to the door. The guy sitting next to me stops this dude from sitting down and said, I'm sorry, my good friend Thomas sits here. It was then that I realized this guy wasn't putting my stuff on my seat to annoy me, he was saving my seat for me every morning. 
And this whole time, yeah, I know. And this whole time, he saw me as a friend, but I was too busy thinking of myself to take him into consideration. Cheesy as it sounds, I was touched. I did cry the first time I read this. I ended up going to class, and of course, he cleared the seat and said, ah, Tom, you're here, okay. And I did get a high five. At the end of the class, I ended up asking him if he wanted to get a big a, a bite to eat with me. We did, and we talked for a while. I got, through, uh, I got through the broken English. The guy moved here from the Middle East to pursue a college education in America. He plans to go back after he gets his degree. He's got two kids and a wife. He works full time and sends all his leftover money back home to his wife. <clears throat> I asked him how he liked America as well. He said he misses his family, but it's exciting here. So he says, not every American is as nice uh, to me like you are, Tom. <laughs> I bought lunch, of course. Dude deserves it. He gave me a high five uh, for buying lunch. Got to keep tradition, right? Moral of the story. Uh, don't do what I do and constantly only think about yourself. It took me nearly the entire semester to do something about a head and a certain place, realize this guy was just trying to be my friend. Better late than never. Man, the gospel calls on us to put our self-interest aside. It's about the needs of others. And we make it into a mandate or a model of hierarchy. Paul would be furious. He says, no. You have time for one more story. Because I think, <clears throat> what if oneness is a one-way street only? This is beautiful, Paul. Thank you. I'm still a child. I'm still a slave. I'm still a woman. What do we do, church? I think... I think Paul addresses this. Maybe not directly, but we'll get there. In Ephesians 6 verse 8, at the end of the discussion, Paul says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Paul is looking eschatologically, he's looking ahead. Right now you're a slave, a child, and a woman, and you are in a relationship of hierarchy. Paul says, I'm going to do my best because in Jesus, unity and oneness is the metaphor, not hierarchy. But I know you live in a culture, in a context where that is not always experienced. We all live in relationships where there is brokenness and power is abused. What do we do? <clears throat> I read a story this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> of Irene Morgan, an incredible human being who happens to be Seventh-day Adventist. 
Irene Morgan, uh, in 1944, she was 27 years old, um, and she had a miscarriage. She already had two children, she had a miscarriage. Um, and after the miscarriage, she wanted to be with her family, with her mom. Uh, and so she decided she'd leave her two kids with, uh, with the other set of grandparents and father and travel. Uh, she went to, uh, lived in Virginia, went to the southern part of Virginia uh, to be with her mom. And this incredible human being who happens to be a Seventh-day Adventist on July 16, 1944, took a bus ride. All the whites were up in the front and all the blacks were seated towards the back per the law. Uh, and some of the blacks were standing. Um, she got up on the bus, miscarriage, and another woman saw that m maybe she needed some help. Another African-American woman offered for Irene to sit on her lap. Would you like to sit on my lap? Irene said yes, and for the next stretch, she was sitting on the lap of this woman about her same age. The bus stopped, uh, 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 two white people got off the bus, and Irene and then another mom who had an infant who was standing uh, went to go sit in the open seats. Um, and then a little bit later, another bus stop, uh, a white couple came onto the bus and started looking to see where there is a seat and noticed that Irene and this other woman with the infant was sitting in the white section. And uh, the, the, the woman with the infant got up and, and, and moved. And Irene said, no, you don't do that, you paid. Um, but she got up. Uh, and the, the, the white woman went to sit down on, on, on the seat. Uh, Irene refused to get up when the white gentleman said, uh, I need to sit here. Um, to make a long story short, she refused and it led to her arrest. The bus driver got off, ran a couple of blocks to get the sheriff to uh, two police officers came and uh, they arrested her. She, she resisted the arrest because she said, I paid for this seat. Um, and uh, she, went, she went to prison. Uh, her mom bailed her for $500. Imagine that in 1944. Her mom bailed her uh, and uh, there were some nasty things being said in the Ku Klux Klan and all sorts of things involved. But Irene just said, you know, I had so much to focus, my kids and my life and, and my pain. Uh, yeah. So she went to court, and at the county court, she was fined $100 uh, for resisting arrest and $10 for violating public uh, transportation segregation laws. Uh, Irene, being this incredible human being who happened to be a Seventh-day Adventist, um, said she will pay the $100 fine for resisting arrest, but she will not pay the $10 fine for uh, violating public transportation uh, laws. Uh, she ended up taking this to the Supreme Court. Uh, and I'm going to read uh, a quote from an article by Dr. Baker in Spectrum magazine this morning. Irene Morgan did indeed take her case all the way to the Supreme Court. To make a long story of almost two years of legal battle short, her case was taken up by a brilliant young Baltimore lawyer named Thurgood Marshall and his team backed by the NAACP. The next summer, the Freedom Riders tested the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, oh, one thing that I wanted to say is the Supreme Court uh, voted in favor of her six to one. And uh, because of this incredible human being who happened to be a Seventh-day Adventist, the next summer, Freedom Riders tested the Supreme Court's decision that ruled in their favor by 
riding the public buses through the southern states. And they sang these lyrics uh, that historic summer. I don't know how the tune goes, but on June the 3rd, the high court said, when you ride the interstate, Jim Crow is dead. Get on the bus, sit any place, because Irene Morgan won her case. You don't have to ride Jim Crow. This Morgan versus Virginia case uh, had been credited as being among the catalysts for Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954, for Rosa Parks' uh, bus protest in 1955, and the success of the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s. And in 2001, President Bill Clinton awarded Irene uh, with the Presidential Citizen Medal for her courage. Um, the inscription on the medal said, when Irene Morgan boarded a bus for Baltimore in the summer of 1944, she took the first step on a journey that would change America forever. And here we are in 2019, still struggling because we don't get the mystery of oneness, this metaphor that transforms us into placing our own self-interest aside and focusing on the needs of the other. The gospel is about ordinary people taking a clue from Jesus, submitting to one another in love. But the gospel is also about ordinary people standing up to power, any power, that breaks the oneness of Christ. Friends, let's submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen.